It is, and like Mike said, it's just a blessing to be able to fellowship whenever we get the chance. I know we don't get that chance often enough, I feel like, but it is a blessing to be able to uh, preach the Word and to see how God is using all of you um, here. And um, I've enjoyed friendship with Randy for a long time back at Bakersfield Christian and, and just been so thankful for him in so many ways, as I'm sure you guys you guys are the lucky ones. You guys get the benefit from him all the time. So um, just very thankful for that. And um, yes, and we are going to preach the word today like you do here every Sunday. So please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 21. <clears throat> Psalm 21. Song selection was amazing today. I don't know who did that, but it was incredible. I feel like you preached my whole sermon as you guys sung. So it's, it's great to be able to continue in worship and hear the word of the Lord in response to that. So let's read together. Psalm 21, I'll read, follow along, and from verses 1 to 13. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire, and have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. For you met him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You have given, you make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath. And fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise Your power. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our great and glorious triune God, we come before You in worship as only You deserve, knowing that You are the Creator of all things, the Sustainer of all life, but You also draw near to those who are meek, humble, through your Son. And I pray, God, that as we open your word today, that your Spirit would illumine our minds, soften our hearts, so that we may hear what you have to say to us, that we would come to the word, um, submitting ourselves to it, as we do to you, so that you can change us, making us more like your Son. Father, especially as we get a glimpse of Jesus in all of his glory today, as your eternal and glorious King. May we be humbled, encouraged, strengthened, 
and emboldened to preach the gospel of our King forever. We pray this in His name. Amen. Well, I know I know many of you um, from various locations and different things, but I'm not sure how many of you know that my family has been involved in foster care for a while. We've been doing foster care and hoping to adopt for about four, almost five years. Um, we've had five kids in our home, and um, Lord willing, next fall we'll get to adopt our first. A little guy who's with us right now is such a blessing. I've had him for about a year. Um, and as excited as we are about that, we also had to say goodbye to four other kids uh, who we had for long periods of time and just really loved them as our own. Uh, I'm sure many of you parents, you know how hard it would be to, to send those kids away. Um, I can remember even as we sent them away, some of them we didn't even know who we were sending them to. We met the people that they were going to the day that we handed them off, like an aunt and an uncle. Um, And some of them we did know where they were going. And that made it harder. Um, Going back to really difficult circumstances. And and I can remember for each of those kids, the night before we had to, to send them away, just holding them and praying that by some miracle God would let them stay. That He would protect them and care for them. No matter where they went, we didn't really know if we'd ever see them again and and just begging that they would not leave. But we, we said goodbye and it's still been one of the toughest things I've ever had to do. Maybe the toughest thing I will ever have to do. But I can remember in the midst of that, the only thing really that gave me comfort, the only place that I found peace and hope was actually to meditate through Scripture, on Christ as King. And you may think that, well, that's kind of strange. Why not Christ as Savior, Lord, uh, Comforter? So many images of Christ. But I thought about those things, but I kept on coming back to Christ as King. Because when I realized that He was our Savior, that's, that's a blessing. But when I meditated on Him as King, I remembered that He was in charge. And that gave me hope. That gave me peace. And I kept on coming back to pictures of that in Scriptures, like the psalm that we have today, because when I remembered that Christ was in charge, I remembered that He wasn't just in charge of the kids I was sending away. He was in in charge of my biological kids, my wife, my family, my friends, and He is good. And I'm so thankful to know that my Savior is the one who rules and reigns over everything. And He's also the one that will come with justice to anything that happens to His children. That's the hope that I want us to reflect on today. As we read Psalm 21, that's the hope that it gives us. That Christ is our King no matter what we're going through. And in the midst of this dark world, I know some of you are wrestling with those things. Whether it be sin, death, illness... Whatever burden you might bring this morning, the one hope that you have is to look to your King. Not just for healing, but for salvation. And for restoration. Because in one man, in one King, we see both. And so that's what we'll do as we look through this Scripture. So look with me at Psalm 21. Let me talk about this superscript first and give a background before we get into the actual text. 
to reflect on our King. So the superscript says, To the choir master, a psalm of David. So right away we learn that this was meant to be sung by the people. It was meant to be an encouragement, a source of joy for the people. And it was written by who? It's written by David, as many of the psalms were. But actually, it's not just written by David. It's about David, concerning David. It's probably um, most concerning him because it's talking about David as the king. Now, scholars generally classify this psalm as a royal psalm. There are not too many of those. There's about ten total in Scripture. And royal psalms are about God's king. They give us insight into the joys, the struggles, uh, the pain, and even sometimes the way that God shapes His King to rule His people. And this psalm does that as well it's, as God develops His kingdom and develops His King here. Now, this psalm is unique too. And so helpful for you to know that Psalm 20 and 21 are like mirror images of each other. They're the only two royal psalms that are back-to-back throughout the whole Psalter. And the other ones are spread all over the place, but these psalms almost echo each other. And I'll try to get a glimpse of that today since we didn't go through Psalm 20 last week. But you guys have been going through Old Testament, I hear from Randy, and talking about how we see Christ throughout all scriptures. And this, I think, will be such a blessing to you. Because this psalm, as all the, the royal psalms are, are grounded in the truths of Christ as king. He is the great king that we look to. In fact, t- Psalm 2 sets us up for that, doesn't it? If you read through the Psalter, Psalm 1 and 2 are kind of the window into the whole book. And Psalm 2 talks about God's anointed king who gets God's eternal promise to rule and reign forever. And then as we read the royal Psalms, we always have to look back and think about God putting his, hill on, or putting his king on Zion's hill. His great ruler, as we get a glimpse of him in Psalm 2. But we also have to know, too, that since David wrote this, We have to keep David in mind as well, and we have to keep the promises given to David in mind. In 2 Samuel, we know that David got the promise from the Lord that he, through his offspring, would rule and reign forever, right? That someone from David's family, his seed of him, would be able to be on God's throne for all eternity. And his kingdom would never fade. And so we keep those two kings and kingdoms in mind. And as we read these things... I'm sure you're already thinking this. We, we have to read them with the New Testament in mind, right? With really the whole Bible in mind. We have to read these through Christian lenses. And that's why I was so encouraged to hear that you guys are going through Hebrews. Uh, we're preaching through Hebrews on Sunday morning. And it's encouraging to know you guys are going through it on Sunday night. But Hebrews trains us so well for this, doesn't it? To look at the Scriptures and see the shadow pointing to the substance. Right? See the... The sign pointing to the greater fulfillment. And as we, we look at David this morning, we have to actually see David as almost a lens by which we see Jesus. We need to look to David, but then through David to see Jesus, our great King. And this psalm will help us because there are so many descriptions in this psalm that clearly go beyond David and what his kingdom is about. So as we read the psalm, we want to do those things, but we also want to... Um, Pay attention to the structure here. So this is a little bit important as we talk about the way the psalm unfolds. This psalm is is split in half, essentially. Half of the psalm is about the blessed king, verses 1 through 7. And you might have noticed the shift, even when we read it. There's a a really drastic shift at verse 8. And verse 8 will talk about the victorious king. So, verses 1 through 7, the blessed king, and verses 8 through 13, the victorious king. And the amazing thing is, as we move from this blessed king to the victorious king, 
we actually are bracketed by two moments of joy. You probably heard that when we sung those hymns, right? Rejoicing constantly. Look at verse 1 with me. Verse 1, notice who's rejoicing. O Lord, in your strength, the King rejoices. And in your salvation, how greatly He exalts. And you need to know, this is the King. This is God's King. This is David's King. This is a victory lap for the King. He just went to battle. God gave him the victory. God preserved him. And as he's coming back into town rejoicing, he's rejoicing in the Lord. Not his own strength. That's how the psalm begins. And look at how the psalm ends. Verse 13. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. And now catch this. We, not the king, we will sing of your praise are seeing and praise your power. Do you see what happened? It went from the king rejoicing in verse 1 to the people rejoicing in verse 13. Well, how do we get there? How do we get from the king and his rejoicing, his exalting, praising God, being contagious in a way where the people burst forth and follow the king to praise their Lord? That's actually pretty simple. What brings the people to worship to follow their king is them getting a hold of this picture of everything that God has done and everything that God will do through His king. So as God's covenant faithfulness is shown through this king, as the blessing that God gives the king trickles down to the people, he becomes a source of blessing and the people rejoice and they get a glimpse of this glorious king and they praise God. And so should we. Every time we get a glimpse of Jesus in Scripture, no matter what difficulty you may have, the struggles of sin and hardness of heart, the difficulties of broken relationships and and suffering in this world, all of them fade away in the light of the glory of our King. And we find joy and peace in the King who rules over it all. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to rejoice in our blessed and victorious King. So let's do that actually starting in verse 2. Now that we read verse 1. Verse 2 says, You have given Him, that's the King, His heart's desire and not withheld the requests of His lips. Selah. Oh, that little pause there is so appropriate. Because this is a picture of, of the King's trust in the Lord. In fact, turn back one page, probably, to Psalm 20. Psalm 20, verse 7. Remember I told you these two psalms are like mirror images of each other. One is the kind of the foretaste of the victory, and the last one is the celebration. So let's look at what this king did before the battle. Psalm 21 is after the battle rejoicing. What did he do before the battle? Look down to verse, verse 7. Look at where this king's trust was. Some trust in chariots. Some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Oh, this is so important that while other kings are counting their men, their chariots, flexing their muscles and measuring themselves up against the enemy, where does this king and these people go? They go to the Lord. They go to the Lord for strength. And look up at verse 4. We see what their request is even before the battle. Verse 4 says this in Psalm 20. May He grant your heart's desire. 
and fulfill all your plans. That's the plans of the king. May we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of our God, set up our banners. I love that. Right? We're going to put up the banners and tell the world that our God saves. And that God is going to preserve us. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now turn back to Psalm 21. Listen to verse 2 again in light of Psalm 20. You have given Him His heart's desires and have not withheld the requests of His lips. You see the fulfillment? God answered this king's prayers. God listens to this king. Now, of course, that's talking about David, right? The Psalms are full of his prayers. Beautiful prayers to God. And God granted many of those prayers in in David's life. And we see that. Oh, but we have to look well past David here, don't we? Does God listen to his king? Absolutely. And as Jesus was in this world, he had a perfect prayer life. We see him go off on his own so many times. And we also get a little window into what he prayed at times, don't we? In John 17, we hear Jesus praying for this. You don't have to turn there. Let me just list a few of the things that he prayed for. That his people would be with him one day. That the Father would protect his people. That evil would not gain victory over over the people. And that the Father would sanctify and would save his people. I don't know about you, but I want those prayers to be answered. I need those prayers to be answered. And what a joy is it to know that God listens to that king. The Lord grants the requests of Christ. And the Bible even goes further and says, when Jesus ascended to heaven, sits at the right hand, what is he doing? You ever thought about that? Right now, as we worship, as we pray and we sing, what is Jesus our Lord doing? Well, fundamentally, the Bible talks about many things, but one fundamental thing is he's praying for us. He's our advocate, right? And he's the best lawyer that we could ever get to argue our case because he doesn't use our evidence. He uses his own life as evidence, his own righteousness for our justification before the Father. And he's praying for us, praying to the Father for us. And the Holy Spirit even helps us along in that, doesn't it? Holy Spirit intercedes for us as well. I don't know about you, but I've been to many places in my life as the one I've described earlier where I don't even know what to pray. Where all I can get out is help. Help. And Romans 8 says the the Spirit intercedes for that. And so when Christ hears that prayer, He says, I know exactly what you mean by that. I know exactly what you mean. I know exactly what you need. And based on Psalm 21, the Father will hear that prayer. I have been so blessed by people praying for me throughout my life. So encouraged and strengthened. Even as we often pray for you guys on Sunday morning and pray for this church. It's, so, it's a blessing to see God work through those prayers. But there's a whole other category for Jesus praying for me. Right? Robert Murray McShane says, If I could hear Jesus praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. And He is heard by our Lord. God answers the prayers of this King and it continues. Verse 3, 
Verse 3 is the blessings continued of our blessed King. Now don't... Oh, for, let, me, let me stop there for one second. I forgot to mention that. Verse 3, normally when a king would claim victory, when a king would go out and win the victory for his people, what would normally happen is the people would go out to meet him. Kind of this victory parade, right? They would go out to meet him, rejoice in the king's victory, and they would bring him into town in all his glory. And this victory parade would just be a rejoicing in all that's happened. It even happened in the Roman government, where they would go out and welcome a general into town. Now, no doubt that's how David was often welcomed back into town. But check this out. Look who comes out to meet this king. Look who starts his victory lap. Verse 3. For you meet him with rich blessings. Who's the you there? That's the Lord. God Himself comes out to start the victory parade with this king. And He comes out with rich blessings. Oh, those words have probably just become so dull to us, right? In so many ways. And the blessings here aren't just the spoils of war here. These are the blessings from the Creator of the universe. The giver of every good gift. And the blessings are listed here. Look at the the first blessing at the end of verse 3. God Himself does what? Sets a crown of fine gold upon His head. The first blessing that this king gets is the authority to rule and reign in God's place. To rule and reign the people of God. Rule and reign over them. To shepherd the people in God's place. After this great, great victory, God brings this king and says, all authority in heaven and earth is given to you. Sound familiar? This is not just David, is it? Certainly David was anointed as king. But Christ Himself, when He went to the cross, paid the final penalty for us, rose from the grave, ascended to heaven, all authority in heaven and earth was given to Him. And the Father said, sit at My right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Our King, Christ our King, has been given this fine crown of gold on His head to rule and reign over this world. And not just that, look at verse 4. He, the King, asks life of you. You gave it to Him. Length of days, forever and ever. Oh, this is when we really start to see the distance between God's King, His eternal King, and David separate, don't we? Surely David was preserved in battle. He was given a, a long reign. And, but the thing is, is that David's bones are in the ground somewhere. If we could find him somewhere, we could dig him up. He's dead. And every good king died. So important to realize. I know it's an obvious thing, but the mortality of godly men and women is 100%. Hope that's not a shocker. We, we like to think that their influence, their ministry, their work would extend forever, don't we? That's not true in this world, in this fallen, broken world. There is only one king, one king, who came back from the dead. And God gave him length of days forever and ever, as he rules and reigns forever and ever. In verse 5, his glory, his glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him, you lavish upon him. Just gets more and more glorious. And verse 6, for you make him most blessed forever. Oh, this is such a great verse. And it's really hard here because the translation 
could have been done a couple different ways. And the way that it can read very literally, if you go into the Hebrew, you can actually read this as, instead of most blessed forever, you could read it as a source of blessing forever. This king is a source of blessing. Which makes sense, doesn't it? As the king is blessed, his people are blessed. We even get that in our nation, don't we? If our armies, if our president, if they do great things and the blessing extends to them, typically it does trickle on down to us eventually. But how much more in God's kingdom? Once God's king is blessed, he himself becomes a source of blessing from everyone. Now, I hope that sounds familiar. Genesis 22. Don't turn there, but this is the great promise given to Abraham. Do you remember this? Abraham was told, and your offspring, your offspring, or in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Surely David was a little bit of a taste of that blessing as the kingdom of God grew under David and flourished and actually did some amazing things. But we know how that all ended, didn't we? Read the scriptures, we've seen it all fall apart. But not God's king. God's king is going to be the one that Abraham looked to. God's king is going to be the one that everyone in Abraham's day looked to in faith. That's why when Jesus came, what did he say to the Pharisees? Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. That was enough for the Pharisees to pick up rocks and throw it at him. Because he is saying, I am the seed of Abraham. It's not Isaac. It's not David. Look through them to me. I am the blessing. The one that the whole world will be blessed. I am the source of blessing. Not just for the Jew, but for everyone. And look at verse 6. Not just the blessing to everyone, but you make him glad or blessed with the joy of your presence. Again, those last words. I love... There's another translation that translates it that a little bit more literally actually says, instead of the joy of your presence, it says, you make him glad literally before your face. I hope that brings to mind the Aaronic blessing. May the Lord bless you, keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. David got a taste of that, but oh, Christ had the Father turn His face away from Him first to pour out all the wrath on the cross that we deserved. And with pain, the penalty for our sin rose from the grave and God turned His face upon Him in joy, in blessing. Lifted up His countenance upon Him and gave Him peace. And that peace to Christ became a peace for us, His people. His kingdom. Do you see what's going on here? This king is the fulfillment of all of God's covenants. Of all of God's blessings. To Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even to David, and Moses, and Aaron. All those blessings previewed throughout the Scriptures find their terminus, their end in Christ. As Paul himself says, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. In this king. Well, why is that? Look at verse 7. For the king trusts in the Lord. 
such a simple verse. And in this, this chiastic structure, which is like an X, a lot of the Psalms are set up this way. This is the main verse. We're used to the main verse being the last verse, right? Like the end of the argument. No, this is the main verse. This is the point of it all. This king trusts in the Lord. Is that David? Certainly David trusted in the Lord. He was a man after God's own heart. But David sinned greatly, didn't he? He sinned a lot of those blessings away. It wasn't Solomon. It wasn't... You go through the list, right? Just pick one of them. For their moments of glories, they all had moments of failure. But not this king. This king was perfect. Perfectly trusting in the Lord. Perfectly obeying Him. Doing everything. And look at the blessing that comes. Verse 7 again at the end. And through the steadfast love, that's this covenant-keeping, never-giving-up, unfailing love of God, the steadfast love of the Most High, He shall not be moved. Well, this is such a great picture of the Kingdom of God. We live in a world of fragile things, don't we? Even the things that we think are stable can be gone in an instant. You ever got a phone call where somebody said, Are you sitting down? It's amazing how the news can just take our breath away and drop us to our knees. We like to pretend it's not that fragile, so we buy insurance, thinking that, okay, if if things fall apart here, we'll be okay still. But everyone, throughout time, their kingdom will fall apart. By God's grace, it falls apart in this world instead of before the throne of judgment. Because this world is a fragile, broken world. Every kingdom, every ruler, everything in this world will eventually fall apart, including you and me. Because this world is marred by sin. But this king and this kingdom can never be shaken. Can never be moved. Is eternal. And you are only part of this kingdom by faith. And if you are part of this kingdom, you also can never be shaken. Can never be moved. What a blessed king we have, isn't it? I'm sure already you're reading the psalm. You can begin to rejoice in our king. And I think a lot of us would prefer if the the psalm just stopped right there. (laughs) Because it sounds great. It's encouraging, strengthening, so helpful. But I think in God's providence, in His grace, God extends this psalm. Because even as us as Christians, we know that the cross was glorious. But we still feel like we're in war, aren't we? And we know that once you join the Christian family, you don't just join a family, you join an army. Battling the the powers of evil. Powers of principalities in this world. And that is difficult. And it's a burden at times. And it can be draining at times. Even though we have the cross before us, we have many battles that need to be fought. And we beg and we plead, Lord, don't stop fighting for us. Keep fighting. And this psalm says, our king is going to keep fighting until all enemies are destroyed. And that's glorious. And so we go from the blessed king to the victorious king, starting in verse 8. Verse 8 says this, Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. One of the first things this king does to establish his kingdom is go after his enemies. He's not sitting back playing defense. <laughs> right? He's going right after him. He's going to find out all of his enemies. And notice the language here. It just implies that the enemies are in hiding. Isn't that what the New Testament talks about? Even Satan himself can be 
um, disguise himself as an angel of light? That problems can rise up within the church themselves as wolves are in sheep's clothing. And so this king goes after his enemies in hiding. And notice he draws them out what? With his right hand. Sorry, left-handers. The the picture of strength in the Old Testament is right hand. It's the sword hand. It's the, the battle hand. And I love that this king goes after it. He's not trying to delegate or or wait for somebody to take care of it. This king goes after his enemies and he pulls his enemies into the light with his right hand. The hand of strength. So he exposes his enemies, which is exactly what we need him to do. To expose the lies of this world. To tell us the truth about reality that we are so often fed lies for. In so many ways. But also to expose the evil within our own hearts. I feel like in my own life, that's where I ask Christ to go to battle the most. Because I am a master at self-deception. I'm guessing, I don't know many of you well enough, that many of you are as well. Maybe you're so good at it, you don't even believe me when I tell you you're a master at self-deception. But we are. We're, We're so good. We're experts at excusing or explaining away, or rationalizing, or spiritualizing, or just trivializing our own sin and rebellion. Seeing it as no big deal. Something I'll get over, I'll grow out of. It's just needing more time, or more education, or more training. And we'll just get away with it. But we need the Lord, the King of the universe, to come in and expose the enemies of the heart. Which is a hard thing for him to do because he doesn't just go in and do heart surgery and expose the enemies of the heart. He also subdues them. Look at the next verse. Verse 9. You will make them, those are the enemies of the king, as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in His wrath. Fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of men. Wow. That description is is frightening. We don't even like to read it. Sometimes we get uncomfortable reading things like this because we don't like to see Jesus as this. Notice that. That's not the Old Testament, the mean God of the Old Testament as you hear, right? The Father, the old kind of rule rule heavy God and then Jesus is the one to come and rescue us from him no this is the king this is Jesus our Lord and I'm so glad we accidentally or maybe providentially read more of Revelation because you notice that in in Revelation the last picture we get of Jesus is people calling out for the rocks of the mountains to come and crush them so they won't have to face the wrath of the lamb and we read in those verses of the, the tongue of swords coming out to destroy His enemies. Of Jesus coming in a robe dipped in blood. Treading the winepress of His wrath. Oh, we like to see Jesus welcome children and, and be kind to the beggar. And He was. But we also have to see the side of Jesus that would chase people out of the temple with a whip. That is jealous for the glory of His Father. And that will come in wrath and wipe out His enemies. So we don't want to ignore texts like this. We don't want to just kind of think, okay, this is just too hard for me to handle. We need to understand it. And understand it in a better biblical way because we read pictures like this and go, oh, you know what, this is just a picture. It's just a metaphor. 
Yeah, well, when do you use pictures? When do you use metaphors? When you can't possibly describe the reality. The reality is probably far worse. Way worse than these pictures. And so how do we understand Jesus setting people on fire? Swallowing them up, killing off their offspring. Is that just ancient language trying to describe how a king would wipe out a whole family so, so they would never have anybody to, to contend with them? Well, it could be some of that, but there's something much deeper going on here. In fact, it goes all the way back to Genesis 3. Let me read this. Remember, in the midst of the curse, when the world is still burning, God gives a promise as He's cursing the serpent. He says this in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring. You see what God's doing there is saying, there's going to be this battle that wages war in this fallen world between the offspring of Satan, or the people against God, and then the people of the woman, the offspring of the promise. God's family. And this battle will rage for years to come until one from the woman, an offspring from the woman, would come and do what? Crush the serpent. But this serpent crusher, this fulfillment of the promise, doesn't just crush Satan. It crushes the whole family of Satan. Wipes them away from this earth. Ridding the evil of this world. Or ridding the world from that evil forever. And so this is a picture of Jesus doing battle, waging war against Satan and everyone that would follow Him. Wiping this world clean of evil. And fulfilling once again the promises of Scripture. Even the promises in Genesis 3. And look at verse 11. We see how He does this. Though they plan evil against you, they devise mischief, they will not succeed. Oh, notice the mirror image that when the king succeeds, when God grants the king's prayers, it's victory for him and the people, but his enemies are destroyed. There's no middle ground with this God, right? There's no gray area, no black and white. You don't get participation trophies with this God. You are either in Christ, part of His kingdom, or you are His enemies. And all of Christ's plans will succeed. No matter how wise, how careful you plan, no matter how much strength you have, we are nothing apart from Him. And we will be destroyed. And look at this verse again, verse 11. Though they devise mischief, they plan evil. Isn't this also a perfect description of our hearts? My heart is full of mischief, full of plans of evil. Even when I try to suppress it, it comes out in horrible ways. And God has to do surgery on my soul. Jesus goes in and and exposes those enemies and even painfully sanctifies me by destroying them, doesn't He? He does that for all of us. You know, I was reminded actually of, you're reading C.S. Lewis, right? Screwtape Letters? Um, Another great C.S. Lewis book is The Great Divorce. I don't know if anybody's read that book. Anybody read that book? Excellent book and so creative and so helpful in understanding sin. And there's a scene in that book that this reminds me of actually where there's this man with a lizard on his shoulder and the lizard is this picture of the symbol of his sin. And the lizard is just whispering in his ears, lying to him constantly. And you can tell this man is in pain. He's hearing these lies, but he's also 
believing them and fighting them, and you can see the turmoil. And the angel comes up to, to this man, this angel of the Lord, and looks at this man and says, can I kill it? And at first the man kind of pushes back, no, 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 it's a part of me. It's, it's important to me. And then after a while, the angel just kept so, keeps on saying, can I kill it? And the man is just saying, yes, I would love to be free of this, but no, I don't want to lose it. It's just this perfect picture of how we struggle with sin, isn't it? And then eventually the man reluctantly says, please kill this. I need this out of my life. I am miserable with this. It's destroying me. And when the angel reaches in to kill it, the man yells, you're hurting me, you're hurting me. And the angel actually says, I didn't say that it wouldn't hurt, but I did say that I can kill it. And he does. Crushes this lizard. This lizard actually wails on the ground, and so does the man. But the lizard's transformed into this horse, this beautiful white horse that the man gets on and rides off on. In this picture that Lewis has of, of the sanctification process in us being so painful and so difficult at times, but God transforming us into something more glorious than we'd ever imagine. That's what Jesus does. This battle to wage war against this world and against our own hearts, we need Him to do that so that we can be more like Him. Be fit for heaven like Him. And that's exactly what He does. Look at verse 12. You will put them to flight. Oh, when God shows up, when this king shows up, the enemies will run. Run for the hills. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Wow. Another graphic picture, isn't it? can't even imagine what that would look like. I, I would imagine that even today, in our modern world where we will show pretty much everything on TV that image probably wouldn't happen. Getting shot in the face with a bow and arrow. But we get the picture, don't we? There's no coming back from an arrow in the face. This is a death blow to sin. This king will wipe out every sin in this world for good. And even though the father hung his bow in the sky after the flood, this king will pick up the bow of judgment and not flood the world again, but go after his enemies forever. Wipe them from the face of this earth. This king will claim victory for good. So what are we supposed to do? As the people in this world, as we get a glimpse of this king, what are we supposed to do and how are we supposed to respond? Look at 13. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Brothers and sisters, this is the only proper response to getting a glimpse of Jesus. In His glory, in His might, in His grace, in His blessing, in His meekness, but also in His wrath, in His fury. The right response is to worship Him. Now, I don't know, many of you, maybe some of you are thinking, ah, not that big a deal. And as I said before, there is no black and there is no middle ground with this king. It's, it is black and white. You're for him or against him. And if you will not bow to knee to this king, then you have declared yourself his enemy. And no matter how clever we think we are, how well we plan, our sin will be exposed. Our lies will be exposed. We will be found out. And the only solution, even though we might think we can run from this king, the only solution is to run to this king. And to let the wrath that we deserve fall on Him or fall on us. The Gospel couldn't be simpler in some ways. 
He bears the wrath or we bear the wrath. So I ask you, I beg you, as Psalm 2 says, submit to this king. Kiss the son lest he be angry with you. And you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. This king is a wrathful king. But he's also, as Psalm 2 says, blessed are those who take refuge in him. He's a refuge as well. And for those of you that have taken refuge in this king, oh, delight in your king. Even in the midst of difficulty, be encouraged that the Father answers the prayers of your king. Be encouraged that the Lord and Savior of this world has all authority in heaven and earth. Be encouraged that your king has conquered sin, Satan, and death, and will conquer every evil in this world forever. He's begun that victory at the cross, but He will end it rejoicing in front of His people and His people will rejoice with Him that all of His enemies have been put under His feet and destroyed forever. Be encouraged that your King is the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the Aaronic blessing, the great Davidic King. Every promise in the Scriptures is fulfilled in your King. Rejoice in your King. Be encouraged that you are justified and sanctified and adopted into His family. And be encouraged that your King will come back. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for a picture of Your great King. We're so thankful that we can see Him in His glory through Your Word. And being this side of the cross, seeing His work among the church, among the people. And Lord, as we lose hope in this world, we get bogged down with the difficulties and the stresses of life. And we get weighed down with the burdens that we carry as parents and employers and employees, friends, and even as the church, waging war in this world which can feel so pointless at times. Remind us, help us to see our great King who has claimed final victory at the cross and will come and consummate that victory with His return. Let us find great peace and joy in that King. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.